Welcome to Tactical Breakdown. On today's episode, I had the opportunity to interview Jason Harney and John Gentile, the two men behind an amazing new documentary film called Wrist Lock, the martial arts influence on police use of force, which is just loaded, jam-packed with some of the top trainers in the world. And I had the opportunity to sit down with these two guys, pick their brains on why this film exists, why it's so important, And uh, if you want to take a look at it, click the links below this video. You can get access to it right now. It is available. Make sure to check it out. So let's get into this interview and get after it. Here we go. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown Podcast on the Islet Network. Your number one resource for law enforcement training. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. Quick reminder before we jump into today's podcast, the 2022 ILET Summit is taking place November 14th through 18th, 2022, and it is going to be amazing. This is the third year we've been able to put it on, obviously in no small part, and thanks to the amazing instructors, trainers, experts, and companies that have jumped on board to support what we're trying to do here at ILET. You can go to www.iletsummit.com to register for free. That's right. It's 100% free for you, your colleagues, anybody you want to share this with. And please do share it because the power of the ILET network is just that, the network, which you are a part of. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for being a part of this with us. Make sure you join us for this year's summit in November and help us change the standard of training. Let's get into this episode. Adam Kanakin here with ILET Network for another episode of the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. Joining me today, I'm honored to have Jason, John, gentlemen. Um, but I want to give you a chance to introduce yourself, let everybody know who you are and what you do, and then we'll get into today's conversations. Jason, why don't you kick us off, man? Uh, hey, thanks for having us, uh, Adam. It's uh, our honor as well to be on your show. Uh, I'm Jason Harney, as you uh, said. Um, I'm a retired uh, police sergeant from Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, and I retired about seven years ago and became a full-time documentary filmmaker. And one of my focuses, of course, is to do uh, law enforcement-related uh, films and cover those issues uh, that the mainstream simply does not cover, uh, you know, and bring that information to the masses. Awesome, man. John. Uh, my name is John Gentile. Um, I got a similar background in terms of policing. Uh, worked with Jason in uh, Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department for about uh, over 26 years and worked a variety of assignments from intel, organized crime, uh, repeat offenders, you name it, and detective bureau, surveillance squad, a lot of covert assignments and a lot of patrol and a lot of different shifts. So uh, I was a DTI for about 23 years and I ran a martial arts club in the nineties. So that kind of, you know, dovetailed my, uh, my experience there. And uh, Jason and I did a lot of DTs on the department. So we had a lot of commonality uh, besides Jason becoming my student in the (laughs) nineties. So we have got a lot of history there, but uh, that's, that's kind of a quick summation. Awesome. Well, um, I'm excited for this conversation. Obviously the, the amount of experience between both of you um, is is phenomenal, which I really think leads into why um, what we're going to be talking about, which is the new documentary that's coming out, Wrist Lock, um, which John, you starred in and, and Jason, which you produced. 
you can tell there's experience behind the camera and in the production of this of this product. Um, and I think that's one of those things that really helps set it aside is when you, it's kind of like, in my mind, it's kind of like in training, right? You can tell when there's experience, the instructor actually has the practical experience to back what they're training. That's, and and John, I'm sure you have probably lots, uh, lots to say on that as well, because I'm sure you've seen the opposite multiple times in your career. Oh, yeah. Um, but why don't we, Jason, why don't we start with this? We're, we're talking about wrist lock. And I'm going to bring this up just right now for everybody who's watching this on video. Um, this is the, this is the cover image for the, uh, for the video itself. Wrist lock, the martial arts influence on police use of force coming out September 20th. Um, obviously it's going to be available all around. Um, if you're listening to this video prior to the release, um, you can check it out when it comes out September 20th or anytime after that. Just go click the links. They're going to be all on the videos, uh, link to the video here for everybody. So, uh, Jason, why don't you just tell us a bit about the, uh, bit about this video and, and what it's about and, and how it came to be. Well, you know, uh, how it came to be, it, it, it's, it, it really has to do with what our passions are. I mean, for me, uh, on a, speaking just from a personal level, I've spent the last year of my life, uh, creating this film, so to speak, along with the 17 people that contributed to the film and, and appear throughout. Uh, one thing that we all have in common is we have this passion toward this particular topic. Now, for myself, uh, I was a defensive tactics instructor for my agency for over 20 years and, and taught at every level, the academy level, the in-service level, the instructor trainer level. And, and anybody who knew me throughout my career uh, knew one thing, and that was that Defensive tactics and physical fitness were passions of mine, and, and they were things that I tried to instill uh, not only on my peers, but the people that work for me on the various squads that I supervise. So now in retirement, of course, this is an issue that we all know is, is certainly, uh, it, it is an issue that needs to be addressed. In, in, in my opinion, and in many others in this film, the culture really needs to change. And so how do you change the culture? Well, we have to address these issues. And essentially that's what we've done in this film by bringing together like-minded trainers, martial artists, and, and police experts to really get and die, take a deep dive into these issues of defensive tactics and the poor proficiency, uh, the lack of physical fitness in the profession and compromise mental health all of which we believe are huge factors in use of force decision-making, particularly where it is having a successful outcome. Yeah. I, I, what I love is what you just explained there is that this isn't just about what martial arts are utilized in police service and police training. It's you're, you're talking about a lot of subjects and a lot of topics that maybe don't get as much um, airtime or as much training time as, as they should. Um, and I love that. I love that about the approach to this when it came down to the, um, the men and women that you decided to showcase in this, how did that conversation start? Where was the start? Did you have a, a list of like a kind of like, Hey, these are the people we know we want. Um, and these are the people that we hope to get. How did that whole process start? Well, you know, okay, so obviously, uh, and, and this is, a, I don't know if this is a known fact in the mainstream, it may not even be a known fact within our own profession, but every defensive tactics technique that is taught in, in any law enforcement entity 
all of those techniques are derived from martial arts. So in knowing that, the idea behind this film was to get people who had the, the similar qualification of, you know, retired police officer and trainer and high-level martial artist. So that generally was what we were looking for. Now, in, in pitching this, the idea of this film to John, well, that, that was obviously going to be pretty easy because I've known John since, as he said, the early 1990s when, you know, we first worked together on uh, a graveyard squad at South... Uh, uh, West Area Command. I mean, it was uh, my first introduction to John and, and his to me, and, and we have been good friends ever since. And as he said, I was his student. So you could say this has been gestating, at least in my mind, for, you know, three decades now, this thought of having this martial arts film that would actually show the mainstream audience, uh, you know, what it is that police officers are taught and why and where it comes from and why that training is so important in the outcomes and use of force scenarios. So certainly through my experience as a defensive tactics instructor in my agency and John's experience in that, as well as being a high level martial artist, we have come to know a lot of different people throughout our time. So sure, uh, it, it's a no-brainer. You're going to give Tony Blauer a call. The man is, is legendary and, and is the creator of the Spear system that our agency has been using for well over 20 years. Um, you're going to get the type of credible individuals that can communicate this message. And, and really, the only way to do that is to ensure, like you said, that they come across on screen exuding that high level of experience and passion for the topic. You said something that I really keyed in on there, um, and you talked about the why. We and anybody who's listened to the podcast before follows Eyelet knows that I'm a huge fan of Simon Sinek um, and understanding the why behind something. Why do we do this? Why do we teach this? Why do we train that? Why does this even exist? The and to be able to go down, break it down to the origin or the basics is hypercritical, especially from an instructor perspective. If the instructor doesn't understand why they're teaching what they're teaching, they have no business teaching it, right? Um, and, and I'd love to, John, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, but the, the word that also comes to mind for me is lineage, right? Lineage actually means something. For those of us who've studied martial arts for a very long time, that, that word helps relate the why behind the training. So I want to pass that off to you and get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, why get water from a fridge if you can go to a lake or an ocean to get it, right? You go right to the original source to to question what you're learning. And um, uh, reverting back to the film, of course, the, the film has a variety of, you know, we, we could say systems or styles or whatever, but there's the people that are really behind it that make it work. And as Jason said, in our DT manuals, which of course turn into policy, et cetera, you have all these different techniques. They're dumbed down, but they're dumbed down from martial arts. So getting back to your question, origins and foundations are critical. How you translate them is even more critical in the moment when you need them. So like you can learn, you know, you can learn defensive tactics. You can learn uh, any martial art, Thai boxing, whatever. Um, but your application is really what counts. And you obviously in, in policing in general, you have a, uh, or even military, there may be a certain guideline for you to use unless you're in direct combat, you know, self-defense mode, right? So, mm -hmm. um, 
But the lineage is important because, you know, it requires research on someone's part. I think we all do it. We all like look at media. We all look at things. I'm going to just tell you in the 90s, I didn't have all the access that we have today. So I would subscribe to like martial arts magazines, Black Belt, you know, some of the others. I would, uh, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to live in Vegas, have a school where the base helped me bring people in. So not just being a Filipino martial artist, let's say in the in the 80s, which is I, I was training in the 80s, but in the 90s, I was getting um, my mind open to people like uh, Larry Hartzell. Well, he's an original student of Bruce Lee, but he's a grappler who was not impacted by the UFC. So if you were doing self-defense of any type, you had to see the UFC come on board and go, you know, th these Gracies like them, hate them or whatever. You had to watch some of that stuff, at least being a fan or a long-term martial artist and go, you know what? There's some validity to this ground stuff. You can nullify a lot of things. Now that we know today that that's not the whole game, but the point being, everything really has its place. And I think, you know, you can't shut yourself off, even if you're just a martial artist and you go, you know, I want to train martial arts the rest of my life. You know what? As an art or a sport, maybe you do train in what you like. That There's nothing wrong with that at all. Confidence, ability, stretching, health. There's a lot of good benefits, right? Hey, go for it. Whatever, whatever, uh, you know, whatever helps you get through that. But, you know, if you're looking at the combative side of things like Thai boxing, and I'm going to throw out some things that I favor, but like the mindset of Jeet Kune Do, which is just, it's MMA mindset, right? Means you should be cross-training. Cross-training is important. So you should have some striking, you should have some weaponry, you should have some grappling. I went through this in the 90s and I was like, you know, holy moly, a kid in a candy store, I need to be grappling, you know, and, uh, and just, you know, I think uh, the, the best part about today for people is that they have much more resources than we did in the 90s in terms of trying to investigate what works for you and what's good. I want to dive into a few concepts before I start asking about certain um, instructors on the video and, and certain stuff that you, you learned from that experience. Um, you said a few things there. One that I think is not brought up enough in conversation um, when, because that's a question that I get asked all the time. Oh, you teach DT or you do martial arts. What should I learn? What should I take? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And I'm sure you've gotten that question a thousand million times yourself. Um, it came, comes down to exactly what you said. What is the purpose that you would like to do this? Are you doing it for the sport component, the art component, um, the fitness component? Or are you learning it as a combative art to protect yourself and other people? Because that's a very different application than any of the others. Um, and I think that a lot of times, and in, in what I've seen especially, and we can start getting into how uh, policy and uh, policies and procedures for agencies affect what can be taught, um, New York being a great example that we can talk about if you'd like, um, or California. but the the application of the skill is critically important so was there has there been a time while you were filming this whole thing or speaking to any of these instructors was there anything where you were like geez i don't know if this is something um or is there something that that was being taught or has been taught that isn't directly applicable anymore because a lot of what i've seen in defensive tactics programs there are techniques there are skills that are just like this isn't designed for combatives. 
it's great in sport. It's great in practice. But when you get onto the street, this doesn't work at all. And so I'm wondering if you've experienced that. And if so, what components um, of those systems would that involve? Who do you want to answer that first, Jason? Either. Shoot, you guys shoot from the hip, man. Whoever jumps on the grenade first. I'm going to throw out a bunch of questions that's going to put right. you in the hot seat, and then you guys get to fight over who has to answer it. <laughs> well, I think Jason, Jason's for sure in the, uh, in the police training area was uh, really somebody we needed back in the day. And I'm, I'm not going to toot Jason's horn too much, but Jason was, you know, you need good people in the right areas in policing to move policing into certain areas meaning change because policing our agency was 2,500 commission to get an agency that big to change is an act of God. Sometimes usually it requires a lawsuit with that being said, getting back to the martial arts thing is out because Jason can really highlight that a little bit, but he did move the needle on a lot of the stuff that we were doing at the core. Again, going back to originations of stuff. Okay. Because I ran a martial arts club, you can see from the book and you can see from what you're practicing that there are similarities, but not, you know, if you're teaching combatives, you're kind of whether I don't care what graph you're using for use of force, generally you're in self-defense. Okay. So whether you're using a wheel or a matrix system or whatever, the stuff you're teaching, let's say in tie boxing or choking someone out or whatever, majority of that stuff is high level. No one's going to tell you, you can't use it at the end because it's self-defense. But, you know, obviously we have certain parameters and things we have to follow, which is more restrictive than law most of the time. You guys know that up in Canada, you know. Mm. But, um, you know, I, there are techniques that Jason and I, and when everybody else has had the same conversation, like we're, 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 we're just preaching to the choir. We would talk about things and go, you know, that is BS. Why are we wasting our time teaching this? You know, we got four hours this quarter in three months to teach this technique, but this, this technique really is not that helpful, you know, or we showed up one year, we're doing boxing. Guess what? Is there some value to that? I think so. You know, I think getting hit is a value when you've never mm -hmm. been hit. The stimulus of stress invoked in, you know, a little competitive spirit, which everyone has that most people do in, in policing anyway, you know, you get them on the mat. They don't want to look bad in front of their peers. So it's, uh, you know, but there is value in a lot of things. But there are those things, I would say, um, that have less value. To me, I'd rather have a thicker manual of application of things I could teach than a smaller one. However, counter that, everything we teach has to be dumbed down simple. And it's got to be raw because when you chase somebody with gear on, and they turn around or they you slip and fall or they do and there's a little scuffle your ears gone you will not do anything fancy you're not going to do some kind of collie trick or some sneaky move that you learned you know those are great moves don't get me wrong i mean i, I i'm just you know using figure of speech but reality is you need basic basic raw okay here i am what what do i you know you can't think about what i remember it's got to be instantaneous. And how do you do that when you're exhausted or have stress or the adrenaline dump during midnight hits? You haven't slept during the day. You just came from a drive-through and uh, here you are in a fight within a half hour. 
how do you, you know, that's, that's a mixed bag right there. Right. Of course, we don't, we don't preach that kind of stuff. <laughs> we preach against that kind of stuff, but we, that's our point with the movie, obviously, as we talk about preparation. So Jason. <laughs> well, it's a very complex topic that we're talking about. And there are a lot of different factors into all of this. I'll, I'll start by saying that, uh, Back in 1990, uh, the original defensive tactics manual for our police department was created in large part by a guy who was the academy sergeant for both John and I when we went through our respective police academies named Joe Gemma, who today is one of the highest ranking Chun Kuk Do practitioners in the United States. That, of course, being uh, Chuck Norris's karate style martial art. So I'll give you what one guess as to what the standard premise of our defensive tactics manual in the 90s was. It was karate based. It had a lot of things that were pulled from Joe's experience as a high level martial artist in karate, Chuck Norris karate. All right. It worked in Walker, Texas Ranger. So I don't know what you're complaining about. Well, I'm not, I'm actually, (laughs) I'm not complaining because that that's really where you know, and you would talk to Joe today and, you know, during my time as the academy sergeant, you know, a decade and a half later, him and I had a conversation where, you know, I would talk about what he instilled in us all those years before. And he looked at me and he said, I would be disappointed in you guys if you didn't evolve. So he even understood that, as John was talking about, you had the advent, basically, mixed martial arts, where for the first time, we were seeing two humans get in a cage with virtually no rules and see exactly what techniques did and did not work. So through John's teachings, you know, myself and a lot of other people at the time were able to bring forth a lot of those techniques that did work, particularly as it related to the ground uh, techniques, some coming from Larry Hartzell's Jeet Kune Do grappling, some coming from Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and wrestling and Judo into our defensive tactics program. But as John said, it took a really long time to do so. But along the lines of what works and what doesn't, that's a completely different topic. Because as Marcus Martin, our judo expert in the film, talks about uh, a defensive tactics manual and a technique cannot take a one-size-fits-all approach. And he uses a common technique in law enforcement as the front wrist lock takedown as an example. And he explains uh, why are we teaching this to a 200 pound male and to a 120 pound female and expecting the same result? So in other words, what might be a great technique for Joe Gemma and, and, and Chun Kuk Do Karate and what might be a great technique, you know, for, you know, John might use from coming from Bikiti Tertia or JKD Grappling or, or Rossi Kuntao. Uh, is going to be two completely different things because you're talking about two people of different heights, different weights, different experience levels. And that's kind of the conundrum that every defensive tactics instructor has to deal with because you are, you are uh, given the responsibility of t- teaching and training, but you have to understand what works for one person may not work for the other. I love what you just said there. And and the one size fits all training model that majority of agencies fall under, you're right, does a massive disservice to their officers. I mean, you I, I think back to to running baton training, right? I start I started with Filipino martial arts. So sticks and knives are very close to my heart. I, I love them. I love using them, but it's when you have, like you said, a uh, a small officer who's a hundred pounds soaking wet. 
and you have them swinging a baton as hard as they can, and they can't even generate enough force mm -hmm. to put somebody down. Why are we sitting here wasting the time saying, hey, this is a viable option for you? It, and when it's not, um, like you had said, there's a thousand techniques that you could think of um, that are just not applicable to certain people. And I think that I know as, as a young instructor for me, that was one of the things that I screwed up a lot. And I'm, I'm more than willing to say that. And I've said it multiple times on this show before is I was, um, I don't want to say ignorant would be the right term, but I was very inexperienced and I didn't understand that you have to take, when I have a class of 15 or 30 students, it's almost like I have to teach it 15 or 30 different ways, right? Because every person understands things a little bit differently and everybody has their own physical limitations, whether it be due to injury or body composition or other things like that. Um, and so I love that you said that because I think that's such a hypercritical point in defensive tactics training that we we still miss a lot of the time. Um, and so hopefully we can we can start changing that narrative. That would certainly be the hope. And, and obviously what, what John and I and, and everybody else who, who is part of this film uh, speaks about frequently is just that simple comment that we really do hope that Rislock opens a few eyes and, and, and you know, brings forth uh, a, a really good conversation on this topic that we all believe is missing um, from, from the daily dialogue when it comes to training. I mean, I'm, if they take anything from the film, it's going to be, you know, because our point really is in the film. If, if we make it really simple and you watch the film, which I hope you really like, but the film itself is, it's trying to say that, especially if you're, you know, even you can expand this to regular citizens, regular people who aren't, who aren't policemen. It really comes down to this. It's like to a motivator. It's to get people to train regularly, training regularly will have benefit to any officer that's out there. You work security or whatever. Again, those these concepts can be transferred. It's behavior. Martial arts is a way, if you if you weren't in the military, martial arts can help you develop a, a little bit more structure, uh, more confidence in your application of other things as well. I mean, let's face it, even if you have a book or you're in a security company or you're in a military unit or a police unit, yeah, protocol. Everybody does. Everybody has certain techniques or things they have to follow. But the movie, as far as conversation, I guess to sum up a lot of, you know, it's got a lot of different directions. But one of them is, of course, the people in it are lifelong martial arts people. So they've made it a lifestyle, which a lifestyle is a lot better. It means you practice. <laughs> and practice is better <laughs> than very little practice or a requirement of hey, you know what? We got to go out to the streets early tonight. We're going to have to cancel training. Sorry. And, you know, what were you going to get anyway? Two, three hours? I mean, that's, you know, what are you going to learn in two, three hours in three months? If that's all you're doing, just like Mike Bland said in the film, it's exposure training. And Jason and I, we, we would shake our heads most of the time. We, of course, we train it. We try to give them some good things. Jason had them moving tires. When Jason had him moving tires, what did they do? They complain. But bottom line is we were trying to do things to motivate them, to get them to go outside of the purview of what we had, you know, because we were, we had the gold standard. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm biased probably, but Las Vegas Metro, we had a good training program. We still do. And they're, they are making headway 
compared to smaller agencies throughout the country. Okay. There's a lot of agencies, especially during our filming, we went across the country, visited with other people. Guess what? That conversation Jason and I would have, we had with other people. <laughs> they had the same conversation, same frustrations, same bureaucratic issues of, you know, lack of time. I mean, let's face it, right? A lot of this stuff falls incumbent upon the person. And then some of it falls upon the agency and the people who are there to teach you and support you, such as your, your chain of command or whatever, you know? So, you, you know, can you got to have buy-in. Can I, can I disagree with your point there for, for a brief second? Sure. I think the responsibility falls a hundred percent on the individual. Um, that is that, you know, it's, I've had, I don't count, count, count how many times I've had this conversation with people, but it's, you guys were officers, but you also trained on your own, right? When an officer relies on their agency to give them every skill that they need to survive the job, they are doing themselves a disservice and putting themselves at risk. End of story. I don't disagree with that. I think, I think that, you know, it's, and, and I mean, you guys, like I said, you guys were, while you were sworn and serving, you were still training. Yes. I really feel like if, if we could make one change in uh, law enforcement right now, it's to find a way to motivate officers to take their own lives into their own hands and conduct training on their own time. Whether that's finding ways to make it accessible to them, whether that's by, through time or through money or something else. But I think it's absolutely hypercritical that officers go out and train for those skills that they're going to need. And you're not going to get it. I think we've understood that you're not going to get it from your agency. You're not, you're 40 hours in academy and then whatever, 16 hours, eight hours a year on a mat isn't yeah. going to prepare you to save your own life when it, when shit hits the fan. Um, you may get lucky and a lot of folks do get lucky, but we also see a lot of times when it goes the other way. And I just really hope that, uh, uh, Something like this helps motivate officers to say, hey, listen, there are so many phenomenal martial arts and defensive tactics instructors around the United States and around the world that are open and willing to provide training to officers. There's there's gyms in, I know, Texas and in California that literally open the doors to law enforcement and say, hey, every whatever day this week or every day once a week, come in, train for free. Like there's, there's things out there for officers. It's just, we do a really shitty job at letting them know what exists. What do you guys think? Well, I think it, it's an interesting point you make. And, and I have no doubt that it'll be part of the conversation that most will have when they see this film. Um, I, I, I agree with you. I also agree with John and that's kind of where we're at on this. Uh, here's the reality. We know you've got about 18,000 police departments in the United States. Uh, uh, that's about 850,000 police officers, roughly. About 85% of those departments have 50 officers or less. So you're talking about small agencies with very little infrastructure and, and more than likely very little training budget. And thus, they farm out a lot of their training. They don't have in-house training units like, like uh, ours did, for example. Now, <clears throat> at least in my opinion, 
I feel like these agencies are setting up their officers for failure. And I think it is partly their responsibility to ensure that's not the case. One of the comparisons that we make in the film, and, and it's one of the roles that Forrest Griffin plays, is we say, okay, if, if, if I'm an MMA fighter and I'm going to sign on the dotted line and I'm going to fight this guy or girl or whatever, uh, two or three months from now, what happens? I go into this extensive, complicated, complex eight to 12 week fight camp, right? Where I'm going to have a strength and conditioning coach, a diet coach, uh, a wrestling coach, jujitsu coach, striking coach, a head coach, all of these people that are going to show me film on the person I'm fighting. I'm going to be in the best physical condition of my life and the best version of myself when I walk into that cage that night to fight this individual. Well, what does a police officer get before their next fight? Um, really, literally nothing. They might have had a couple hours of training and handcuffing or baton work or maybe a little self-defense in the 5, 10, or 15 years since they left the academy. Some agencies, that number is zero because there is no recertification training in defensive tactics. Uh, they've gained weight since they left the academy. They're out of shape. They don't work out. They drink. They eat like crap. And that's before we start talking about the potential uh, mental health complications from the trauma that they're enduring with the things they're seeing and doing on a day-to-day -day basis. And we're expecting that person to fight and, and look great on camera flawlessly uh, or else they get scrutinized by the media, by their department, by the public. We know how that works. So when, when we talk about what responsibilities an agency has, uh, I think absolutely they should be held accountable to ensure their officers are trained at a certain level. But the flip side of that is what you guys are talking about, and that's lifestyle. Because I could eat a healthy meal on duty, but then go eat a whole pizza and, and, and a bunch of fried food at dinner at home, and what did I just do? I gained nothing. I, I made myself worse. So, yes, you have to have that lifestyle. You have to train on your own. But the agency is also responsible to provide quality training that will prepare you for the things you're going to encounter. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I 100% agree with you on that as well. I mean, the, the agency does hold responsibility for sure. But the officer at the end of the day, it, it, and again, I, I'm speaking kind of from, um, I, I don't know if I'm, I'm speaking, uh, I don't want to say again, a place of ignorance, but I was never a sworn law enforcement officer. I was in the military. So my i can't speak from experience but i i equate this to like time in the military if if we were active duty and we knew we were going to be in a deployment cycle or, or not even in a, in a training cycle we were in we had to be in shape at all times like there was no there was no option there um and it's it's interesting because you know this topic gets brought up a lot is the the training differential between law enforcement and military, right? We have military who will train nine to 12 months, uh, work up pre-deployment, deploy for six to nine months. Um, so they're getting, they train longer for a deployment um, than they actually do. Whereas law enforcement, you train for a an academy, 16 weeks, 16 to whatever weeks. Um, and now you go work for 40 years. Um, it's, it's kind of a, it's um, Bill Lewinsky, um, and this is a, an interview that's going to be coming out shortly, but at the Force Science Conference, I spoke with Dr. Bill Lewinsky, and we talked mm -hmm. about how a dog groomer, in the to be certified as a dog groomer in the United States, takes anywhere from six to nine months 
worth of training and certification processes to be allowed to legally trim a dog's nails. Um, yet we put officers through an academy after a couple of weeks, give them a gun and say, here, go do your job. I, I find that to be like the, it's, it's a scary, but also a f- amusing statistic when you think about it. And you're like, how is that even a possibility that we are putting people, human beings into a role where they have to make a life or death decision for themselves or someone else with absolutely little to no training. It's, it's very frustrating. And it's kind of that ongoing cycle that we live in, in this industry. And that's a huge theme in this film. And, and what you just said, you know, Ray Bashirs, who we, we've talked about, he's one of the uh, people who appears in the film, the owner of Blue Shield Tactical, who does a lot of this training that smaller agencies call upon to fill in the gaps that they know that they're missing. Uh, he has a great quote in the film where he talks about when it comes to defensive tactics, a lot of agencies kind of treat it like a vaccine, one shot and you're done. Whereas the reality is it's an ongoing process. Yeah. Well, it is. And, and again, you don't recognize the holes in your game until it's too late. Right. I mean, like I said, I started as a, as a, uh, Filipino, I did Filipino martial arts. I studied some karate. I did a little, I, my, uh, friend of mine is a Nidan Aikido instructor. So I learned some of that stuff. Um, in fact, that's where most of my wrist lock experience comes from him showing me little tricks and tips for that. Yeah. Um, which came in handy when I started doing jujitsu, um, a few years ago and I knew I didn't have a ground game. I knew my ground game basically result was just like powering in and out of everything that I just relied on my weight and my strength to basically take care of something if I needed to. Um, and usually that served me okay. Um, but there really is no more humbling experience in the world than going to a jujitsu gym for the first time after being a. Uh, a combatives instructor, a DT instructor, a martial artist your entire life. Um, and then you go into a, a mat and you get choked out 18 times by a 14 year old girl. <laughs> then you're like, okay, I guess, um, I guess we, we need to reevaluate our life choices here a little bit, but you don't know what you don't know. Um, and that is a, a hypercritical thing when it comes to defensive tactics and martial arts training that I think a lot of people get sucked into these systems where they go, Oh man, I've studied karate my whole life. Like I'm an expert fighter. You're like, no, you're an expert at one specific thing. And there's a lot of other components to this that you're not getting yet. And I think DT programs as they're built right now, they're getting better. Don't get me wrong. They're getting way, way better, especially with the prevalence of MMA and, um, and other things like that. But it's, it's kind of like one of those things I, you see it every single gym that you walk into, um, in, uh, in every department in the world, if they have an in-house gym, you walk in there and there's always a meme photo um, and it's something akin to there's uh, you see a bunch of inmates working out on the yard and it says every day that you don't train, they are right. And every single police agency has one of those up there somewhere. I see that the same way as martial arts and defensive tactics, right? These folks are training to kill you every single day. And you're just going to rest on your laurels and assume that what I've done yesterday is going to be enough to carry me through tomorrow. I think that's a, I think that's just a, it's, it's going to get people killed. Here's the thing. I like what you had to say. And even though you disagreed with me, I get it. But here's the thing of the reality of working in that agency or any other agency is you're dealing with people who some of them are lazy. 
Um, I hate to say that about my brethren and sisters out there, but there are some people lazy. There are some people who have priorities, some people going through divorces. Some people just are a mess. We, we, we talk about that in the film too. But bottom line is you have a certain amount of time to get your point across to these people. On the police department side, it's an insurance policy. We taught you this. Good luck. You know, there's your camera. You got a camera you have to wear. Make sure you justify your actions, okay? The first area of training that gets cut when there's a defund the police or a budget cut is what? Training, right? What's the new training that they're getting today? It's not DTs. And DTs are being sidelined by other training that the departments now are thinking are more important. There's, there's tons of training that cops need today. This is so important. We would never have done a film on it if it wasn't. But I'm just telling you, from a sergeant standpoint or a lieutenant standpoint or even a captain standpoint, you do want well-trained people. You do want them to be smart enough to go to the gym, be healthy enough to come to work. No one wants people calling in sick. And you want them to participate and get something out of the training. I will say the best people in your classes are those that make it a lifestyle, which is kind of what you're you're talking about, especially with the your military background. But we want to encourage that too. Even as a sergeant, I want all my people to be going to the gym. I want them to be training and having fun. I love it when they're in class and, you know, they look like they're doing good. You know, I need to know that my partner next to me is going to be able to back me up. And I need to feel confident not only about myself, but of my team, my squad. And you think, uh, sorry, yeah, I you off. No. Do you think that, and this is kind of a controversial subject, so Bring um, it. <laughs> take it, take it however you want. Good. As the pendulum is going to begin to swing back in the uh, public eye, as far as law enforcement goes, right? Because we're always in this constant state of they hate us, they love us, they hate us, they love us. Um, as we start swinging back right now, obviously recruiting is a massive issue. We can't, we can't get people that we can't get, we can't even fill seats in, in academy classes. Um, we don't have like in some places up here where I am in Winnipeg, um, they did a recruiting drive last year. I want to say last year or the year before um, they had to fill, I think there was 30 seats and we had 1800 applicants or something like that. Like, and all, most of them all with university degrees and, and like, it was a very high, uh, uh, the proficiency in the, the, the class was, was phenomenal, but there's not, there's a lot of agencies. I talked to a buddy in North Carolina. They're like, we needed to fill 12 spots. We had eight people apply. Like, so as the pendulum starts swinging back and as we start getting more people interested in policing itself and being part of this profession, do we, as a, as the law enforcement industry have to start looking at upping our standards of recruitment when it comes to, if you want to get into this job, this is the mindset and this is the type of person that we need so that we know we can sustain you over the course of your career. Because if you come in here and you're already a lazy fuck, pardon my French, we know that 10, 15 years down the road, this is going to be a, a recipe for disaster, right? We know that officers, uh, like over the, if you take an officer's lifespan and a regular civilian's lifespan, officers live 22 years less on average, right? We know that that's like a, that's a fact. And I may be off on the, the years exactly, but the, the concept still remains the same. 
So my question to you is, do you think we need to take a hard look at our recruiting standards and the quality of people that we're bringing into departments and try to screen for those that we know will adapt this as a lifestyle versus those that will not? Well, you know, I uh, actually had the opportunity in, uh, so it was 2007 through 2009, I actually was the recruitment team supervisor for our agency. And I can tell you that at the time, and, and nothing has changed, uh, in order to get 100 people in our police academy, we needed 10,000 people to walk through the door. And that was, uh, that was a, a large number, even for our agency, to recruit because, you know, generally speaking, one of the problems is, the larger agencies are all recruiting the same people. And so these various individuals that are highly qualified, given their ability to pass the testing process is what qualifies them. Uh, all the bigger agencies, you know, your LAPDs, NYPDs, Chicago, Las Vegas, you know, are all going after that same person. And so they have options of where they want to move. You know, I, I, uh, lived in Las Vegas since I was 10 years old, but John was recruited and came out of Connecticut and had a number of different opportunities, but chose Las Vegas because of the agency's reputation. Now, I think what you're kind of talking about when we get back to that size of law enforcement in the United States, you have 18,000 agencies, the larger agencies are recruiting and vetting people in the manner you're speaking. It's very difficult. I mean, just our background alone cuts 80% of the, of the applicants. So it's kind of scary, scary when you talk about a, an academy class with 12 people and they only get eight people apply for it. Well, in, in the standards that we would be used to utilizing, those eight people may not even make it. So they still might be at zero because they, they can't pass these different portions of the test that uh, are very strict. You have a written, you have a physical test, you have a psychological test, you have a polygraph, you have a medical, and then you have a background. All of those, I mean, it, it is a very strict vetting process. Now, when you get to those smaller agencies, a lot of times that doesn't happen. There are still agencies in the United States that send uh, their people out on the street with a field training officer before they even go to the academy because they don't have their own academy because there's a regional academy that they send them to and it might not start till September but it's March and we need you on the street. So imagine that, that's law enforcement in the United States. It's, it's, it's really done well in some places, particularly larger agencies that have the budgets to do it and not so well in other places, but that doesn't change the expectation of what their performance level should be, does it? It doesn't change the fact when someone hires on, I mean, like if, you, if I show you a picture of my academy class, you're gonna see everybody looking fit. <laughs> everybody looks fit. Right. If I show you a picture of them 30 years later, not everybody's fit, you know, like life does change people, right? Things happen or whatever. I think to, to your point, that's a great talking point and, and that we definitely have that in the film for sure. Right. Because this will always be a discussion every year after uh, Jason always brings it up and, and Jason tried to get it on. I remember uh, a fit test. We talked about, you know, in the military, there's a fit test, you know, so there's a, whether it be a positive or negative or both of those things, it, you know, equated into that, you have at least a, like a goal that people have to reach that could help policing out. The unions probably won't let that happen, you know, because you where do you start? You know, you got people who have been on 25, 30 years. You got people that are on five years that could do some of the stuff easier. 
I'm sure there's a way you could do it, but it's a conversation piece for sure. Well, right? look at what Texas DPS just did. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think that's if, if I think every agency should take a hard look at what Texas just did. Um, and, and impl- like, this is the, what I always wondered. And this was, um, and not to take a shot at the Canadian forces, cause that's the, uh, the group that I served with and I love them to death. But, um, I remember going to the QM and, uh, and helping out one day we were, we were screwing around. We had really nothing to do that week. So I was helping out and we were inventorying a bunch of stuff and we have uniform sizes um, I don't know what, what size to call this other than like size tent. Like it, you could fit three human beings in it. Right. Um, and I was just like, why is, how is this a thing? Why does this even exist? Right. Like if somebody is this fucking massive, like they're obviously morbidly obese. They, they're not in good health. Why would we have them in our military? And obviously I understand I was combat arms and there's a lot of support that there's a lot of support groups and and stuff like that. And I understand that. So I don't want to dive into that topic, but I think that what Texas did and to my, this argument that I have is, is setting fitness standards and, and basically body compositional standards for officers saying, Hey, listen, we expect you to maintain a certain level of fitness, or it's just like, I think of it like a firearms qualification. Right. We make people qualify on their firearms so that they can go out and and deploy with their firearms on the street and active duty. I think we should have the same thing for a fitness requirement. Right. You need to either pass this fitness requirement or you're not you're on fucking death duty and and through remedial until you can pass it. And if you can't pass it, time to find a new job. And I I know that sounds really bad. And a lot of people are like, what the fuck? But like, really, I'm I'm. I only say this because I want to save people's lives. It's not because I like I want to discriminate against folks that have weight issues or health issues. I really think that we, because it's not the office, you know who it is. And I think this is the crux of this entire issue. It's not the officer that's out of shape that dies because that officer is out of shape. It's the officer who's in the middle of a fight for their life. And the person they're expecting to back them up can't get their ass up a fucking hill because they ate 16 donuts that morning. That's the issue. And those are the officers that pay for somebody else not keeping themselves in shape. And so I'll get off my soapbox, but that's just, it's always a frustrating thing to me when you see that. And when that happens and it's just like, how do we prevent that from happening in the future? Well, that is the, the crooks of training, right? I mean, and that's the crooks of, you know, that's the conversation. (laughs) It's the conversation we've been having forever. And like I said, Jason did try to uh, um, get that put on for us. And and uh, he could tell you some of the obstacles that were there. But, you know, that that's definitely a good conversation to be had. Because how can you apply all these fancy techniques if you can't, you know, 10 seconds in, you're, you're gassing, you know, and you're, you're fighting for your life or you're helping someone out during a domestic or you're just caught off guard. I mean, how long can you go? Can you go beyond 10 seconds? I hope so, you know? Well, and it and 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 Jason, I'll let you jump in here in a second, but it also plays to like, let's talk about use of force, right? Yeah. The out-of-shape officer is more like we don't the statistics are there. <laughs> we know that the out-of-shape officer is more likely to resort to a higher level of force if they feel like they can't do it at at soon enough, right? So as they get gassed, maybe they feel like shit, I'm gonna lose this fight, my life's in danger. And that's when they end up tasing somebody or shooting someone because they couldn't stay in the fight at a physical level. 
Um, and that's another huge consideration, right? It's like trying to tell these people, it's like, listen, man, you're putting yourself at risk. Look at the amount of liability that an officer takes on every time they roll out of this fucking station, right? Everything you do is scrutinized, hyper scrutinized to the point that if you say the wrong thing to the wrong person, you're going to get called in front of a panel of some people or a board somewhere and get your ass chewed out because you offended someone's sensibilities on something. Like it's, it's the most ridiculous time to be a police officer. And like, man, do my heart bleeds for these folks that are going out there, putting their ass on the line every day to really a thankless job at this point. It's, it's frustrating. Yeah. It's the kind of officer that we have all, all heard that has said, you know, if I ever end up on the ground with somebody, I would just shoot them, you know, or, or the kind of officer that says, I'm not going to chase somebody in a foot pursuit. I'll just get in my car. You know, we all we all have worked around those types of people. And I and, and I know John in the film specifically talks about the importance of knowing that the people that you're working with are at a certain level so that you trust them in circumstances that might involve your life or somebody else's. So it's hugely important. But I think a lot of what you guys are talking about right now, it keeps reminding me of, you know, the scenario in Rocky three where, you know, Adam, you had just said everyone wants to fall on their past laurels and the things that they've already accomplished. So so here we are in a police academy. Well, let me go back to Rocky Three. What happens in Rocky Three, right? Uh, you know, um, Rocky Balboa, he, he's, he's defended the title a number of times now, and, and he's got a hungry champion, Clubber Lang, that, you know, wants blood and, and believes he can, he can destroy him. And does Rocky take that threat seriously? No, he has like a... Uh, theatrical training camp that his own manager Mickey tells him is, is ridiculous and that they're they're not training at the right level and the right intensity but does Rocky take it serious no he's getting signing autographs while he's on a bike he's uh, getting kisses from female fans while he's uh, jumping rope not a serious camp he gets his ass kicked well make that a, uh, a comparison to what John was just talking about uh, with our various police academies 30 years later you go through the academy, you're young, you're hungry, you're clever lang. But then what happens? You get a house, you get married, you get toys, you, you, you have a decent income, you're having a decent life, and you start to indulge in those types of things. The hunger's gone. Suddenly you get this, this you know, uh, fat deposits on your body, you're, you're overweight, uh, and, and you just are simply not capable of performing at the level that you used to. Now, what do we all blame that on? Age which I'm going to tell you right now is bullshit. That is a, just a, a ridiculous excuse. Uh, it is comes down to two things, your physical activity and what you're putting in your hole. It has nothing to do with how old you are. Uh, injuries can come into play. Age does not. You can still perform at a high level. And that's what I think we have to get over in the law enforcement profession is people uh, make too many excuses of why they can't instead of examining why they can. And I guess to close up the squad thing and the incumbent, what's incumbent upon the administration, one of the things you do get from squad training, this isn't to really counteract, you know, the individual, because I do agree, the individual has to get out there. They should be lifers. They should be lifers of training. They're into this profession. But as far as a squad itself, you do want to know who can operate. A sergeant, should look at that squad. If he's got a weak link, it's time for him to work on that person and have that person work on themselves. The squad has to have confidence in each member of the team, team 
is synergy, right? It's good stuff. I don't care if you're running together. I don't care if you're doing DTs together. You're doing a lot of stuff together to do what? You want to build that confidence within that group and make sure everybody's operating the way they should. So even though that time I do ridicule it because I want more, I always wanted more. Um, I think it's important that you, you had whatever time you had. And it's important you make good with the limited time that you do have. So, Absolutely. Well, I think this is a great time. I want to start diving into this, this uh, movie that you guys put together here. Uh, and so what I'd like to do, um, or I guess it's a film. It's not really a movie. What would be the correct terminology? It's a film? Documentary okay. film. Yeah. Documentary film. Documentary film. Okay. Yeah. Right. Does does now here's just a here's just a plain just random question. Does movie imply that it's fictional? No, you can call it a movie. Yeah, I mean, uh, film is more of an industry term. I think movie is more of a casual term, but they mean the same thing. Gotcha. Okay, I want to I want to show the preview for this thing if you guys are cool with that that uh, you guys have put out, and then let's let's talk about it. let's dive into it. All so right. I'm gonna share I like my, it. I'm gonna share my screen here. Um, I want to point out real quickly the, um, and I have a the little thing here to show everybody the instructors that you guys brought together on this were some of the best in the business. Um, and so, and there's a bunch of folks. And for those of you who can't see the screen right now, um, there's, there's folks on here like Tony Blauer, Eric Paulson, Forrest Griffin, Bob Hindi, uh, Jared Wahongi, Betsy Brantner Smith. Uh, Ray Bashirs, like you'd said, um, there's just some phenomenal instructors here that I've had the opportunity to work with or speak with before. Um, John, what was it like to to be able to to work with each of these folks and and just kind of learn? And um, I know for me, like I I can't get enough of training. So what was that like to be able to go to every single one of these folks and and get to do some training with them? Uh, I loved it because I, I'm a martial arts fan and I'm a fan of a lot of actually everybody in the film I'm a fan of. So I had a lot of fun and um, obviously we do a little demo portion for each person and I get to do some training to find out what they think, where their minds at. Um, some of them I've trained with before, you know, there's, there's no two ways about that. That's how we kind of got them in the movie and uh, that's always good. And it was great meeting people like Tony Blauer who I, I had never met. So it was a good opportunity in that sense. And, you know, to every person, I think we spent about a half day with like each person and it was, was really good. I mean, talk about being generous with their time. Jared Wahangi, Eric Paulson gave us, you know, their gym for half a day with nobody in there. Um, wanting to, you know, wanting to participate in something that, you know, is bigger than us. It was good. It was great. Was there any person in particular where you were like, wow, this was like, this was something I didn't expect this. Well, when I put the uh, suit on with Tony Blower, I liked it uh, because the suit was impressive to me. That was, you know, I haven't wore one of those. Uh, I wore the red man for years. You know, we had different, you know, different protective equipment through the Academy and through in-service training, but putting the gear on with uh, Tony Blower was uh, first of all, it's super light. Um, you know, there is a component of training that is scenario based that should have a stress component, which is the hardest thing to get in any structured martial art. Like in grappling, it's a force multiplier. There's a different methodology when you grapple. It's, it's always force. Just like you said, you can use your body weight. You can muscle some things, right? 
Uh, Thai boxing is the other one or boxing or wrestling, right? Because, you know, you're constantly countering the guy and it's unpredictable, right? So I think with the suit, what it does is it gives you a lot more options to not only do that type of stuff, but interject a lot of like strikes, some clinch grappling, and you can do it and not be damaged. You know, the pressure's there. Did I drive home with a mark over my head? Sure. <laughs> but the whole time that's from pressure, that's from being elbowed or need. So, you know, I liked being, I was came from Kung Fu. I was out to, to let these guys kind of work me over. I was there to ask a few questions with the filmmaker, Jason. And, uh, you know, we were trying to get some answers from them, you know, on, on how they teach, what their methodology is, what's their issues that they see. And, uh, it just was a lot of fun. So the fist suit or the, uh, the, the, the high gear suit is light. And if you want something for pressure to pressure test stuff with stress, um, I, I definitely, I, I thought it was great. So it surprised me how light it was and that I could take some shots and, you know, pack up and go to the next one. <laughs> yeah. High gear. I mean, I love high gear stuff. Um, I've, I've been exposed to it for a long time. Um, as Tony will say, like there's, there's a few, um, imitations on the market right now. Um, so if you can't, if you can't afford the, the actual high gear stuff, I mean, go ahead, you got to train with what you have, but, um, yeah, the high gear suits are, are phenomenal. Um, like you had said, the reality-based training component, the ability, um, this came up in my last conversation with him. We talked about, it's a difference kind of, um, when the coach asks you, are you hurt or are you injured? Right. We want, we want there to be some type of actual feedback mechanism to that officer, to that student. Whereas if you make a mistake, there should be a punishment for that mistake, but it shouldn't cause the injury. Right. But Hey, you get, you get tagged a few times with that suit on. It's not like you don't feel it. <laughs> like You still feel it. It just prevents massive injury from taking place. Um, Jason, how about you, man? Was there, was there any particular person that you knew you wanted to have involved with this project? Um, or maybe, I don't, maybe I could even ask you this. Are there, is there somebody that you wanted to get, but didn't like, what was, um, what was the process like of putting this lineup together? You know, I have to tell you, uh, we were really fortunate. Um, everybody that we, uh, pitched this project to told us, yes, I, I didn't get a single no from anybody. So, uh, the wish list uh, was completely fulfilled. So yeah, that was really cool. Um, you know, to comment on on uh, Tony, he came to our academy uh, when I, at the time I was the academy sergeant in the mid 2000s and pitched spear and the high gear suit, uh, which at the time would have been new to me. And you know, we we decided that spear was uh, uh, less foundational and a little bit more advanced for what we were teaching in the academy. So we sent him to our in-service training unit, where again, that's still taught to this day. But on the high gear suit side, when we did a demo with that, we were so impressed with it uh, that you know this is kind of shows you the difference between a department that actually cares about training and has a budget for it versus ones that don't. On the spot, we bought one in the correct size for every one of our instructors in the academy. Uh, I believe they were at the time about $700 a pop. So, and didn't really think anything of it because it's gear we needed to provide the best training to our recruits as possible. So yeah, Tony had a very uh, both direct and indirect influence on the training that we provided for years. So having him in our film at this juncture was obviously a tremendous honor. And he knows that because I've certainly communicated that to him. 
Uh, but as, as far as some of the other, you know, individuals, you know, it really just comes down to some of the themes of the film and how everybody kind of exudes the same idea. That last line John says in the trailer where he talks about he's less likely to use force knowing he can use force effectively kind of brought back, uh, you know, when we were filming Forrest Griffin's segment and he talked about when he was a police officer, which for him would have been in the early 2000s uh, in Georgia, uh, that some of his supervisors thought that he was a little too laissez-faire, nonchalant when he was on calls. And what it really was, was because he had confidence in his skills. What he referred to it when we talked to him was he thought it was his superpower. And that really uh, was something I, I keyed in on because John and I and a select group of other people in the 1990s used to say the exact same thing because there was a time, think about Hoist Gracie in UFC one through four. He knew something people didn't, right? Well, John and I, and again, a group of individuals that uh, were on the department training at the time also knew something other people didn't. So it, it, when Forrest said it, it felt like a superpower, we thought that was kind of cool, but it, it is really true. So there were a lot of uh, really great contributions in this film. You know, I certainly don't have time to go through all of them, but uh, to me, it's a sum of the parts, you know, uh, I wouldn't want uh, to highlight any one individual instructor or expert. I think everybody came together, all glued together with, with John and his outstanding work really has made this film special. The coaches were really good. Like um, the coaches definitely, you know, contributed to, uh, to the film in a, in a real positive way. And we're really giving with their time. And then the officers, that are in the film have great backgrounds. I mean, when we talk about lifers, those trust me, these are like really good guys. Now they all have stories, which is good. They all have what they do. Uh, what they do is what they do. You know, I mean, I, I wish I could do some of the stuff. Some of them did. I just need more practice too, but they were great. They were great. And um, you know, there is a mental health side of the film and, and a heart side. So I, it just, it came together really nicely. I think everybody that, that took part in it, we didn't have an issue with like time or anything else. And, you know, a lot of the people just dedicated a lot of stuff to make it, you know, happen, you know, but when we were on the road, uh, a lot of the, a lot of those people did a lot for us. So we're, we're really thankful in that sense, you know, when you, when you talk about it being a superpower and, and um, how, you know, Forrest would be just kind of nonchalant when he shows up to calls. Um, it reminds me of a, there's an old Simpsons episode um, where there's like the Japanese Yakuza fight the, the mob. Um, and there's a, there's this little guy in a white suit who's just standing there super calm and chill the whole time. And then uh, eventually turns out to be like this crazy mark, like just kicks everyone's ass. Um, it reminds me of like working at a bar or getting into when, when you have that one person who's standing around and they're calm in the face of like, potential threats that are happening all around them you kind of have an idea that that person is going to be dangerous right like yeah. they're somebody if somebody's comfortable in this environment there's probably a very good reason why and i think um and again to go back to the whole use of force component though right and, and to what john said in the film there if you're trained you're less likely to have to use your training because you're going to be able and i, I hate to use this fucking buzzword you're going to be able to de-escalate better, 
right? By because those the the suspects that you interact with too, they're also human beings. They also pick up on nonverbal cues. And we know that a large percentage of our communication is nonverbal. So when you're there and you're responding to a call and dealing with a certain person and they're getting all hot and bothered and you're there calm, cool, and collected because you have a you have a belief in yourself that anything that they, they're going to do or throw at you, you're going to be able to handle efficiently and effectively. They sense that amount of calm in you, which also allows them to drop there. And they're like, okay, fuck. Obviously, I can't intimidate this officer like I want to. Now I got to maybe take a, take a different approach. And I, and I've seen that in the field happen a lot. Um, you guys, I'm sure you guys have seen that yourselves in your own careers, possibly within your own interactions. So that's such a phenomenal point is, and, and I think that's one of those things too, where you see these agencies where they say, well, we don't want our officers training in MMA because they're more likely to get into fights where the, it's the inverse right? It's the inverse of that is true. And we have to shift that cultural narrative where the better trained our officers are, the less fights they're actually probably going to be getting into. Well, you could go one step further too. I think, you know, I, I was exposed to this in, in our department as well as Jason, you know, all that stuff you guys do is great, but you can't use it. It's not in policy, blah, 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 blah. You know, you would constantly hear, you use that stuff. All you're going to do is get yourself in trouble. You need to stick with the manual. Again, there's so many positives to training. You you know, yes, there's a manual. Yes, there are laws. Yes, we need to know them. But bottom line, you need to train. <laughs> you need, the, you, first of all, you need the fitness. You need to be able to have your body operating on all cylinders. You know, you don't get that from a couple hours, a couple hours within three months, okay? So regular training, again, even if it's not, quote, in the policy, you know, you should know the policy. It's a whole lot easier for you to go, I know all this stuff and feel real confident. And here's policy. It's called decision-making. You should know what you can and can't do. That's incumbent on the officer as well. Mm -hmm. So there's, there should be no fear in them training in something where somebody goes, you know, they're going to, you can't do that because it's, you know, Muay Thai or it's Thai boxing, you know, say, hey, listen, strikes are used everywhere, right? So it's in the manual. We have them in the manual, you know? We have them there for a reason because <laughs> fights are just control moves, you know, but uh, it's an interesting conversation and it goes on. Well, it comes down to, to again, competent instructors being able to teach officers how to articulate their actions as well. Right. I mean, that and managing upward. And yeah. Well, but too, but, and that's again, to go back to the original point that I said right at the beginning of this, this podcast was, as instructors, both of you, so you have the, the martial arts and the DT and the instructor background, but you also have the operational background, right? So you can take, here is the skill set, here is the specific task that I'm going to get you to perform so that you can use it. But here's why, again, the why, here's why I'm teaching this to you. And if and when you do use it, here's how you're going to explain it in your report. If you're going to dictate it, how you explain it to, like you said, your sergeant or your higher ups. Um, so that you're not going to get in shit. And unfortunately that's just the world we live in, right? It's the, it's the CYA world of yeah. everything you do is going to be recorded and that you have to be able to cover your ass. Yeah, I think, I think it's just knowledge, you know, it's knowledge that's missing in some cases. I, John covered the kind of the laziness aspect and that certainly is prevalent. Um, when it comes to the physical fitness side, 
it, it, um, it's just another whole branch of complex issues aside from the defensive tactics issue that we're speaking about. Whereas, you know, let's just say I've never been in a gym before. It's going to be intimidating. I walk in, I don't know how to use these machines or these free weights or these cardio machines properly. And by the way, how long do I do that cardio machine for? What level of intensity do I do on this machine? How much weight do I lift? How many sets do I do? How many reps do I do? How many weeks do I do this program? The fact is, uh, and this is a huge point in the film, we hear all the time about how professional athletes, such as LeBron James, will talk every season about how they spend a million dollars on their body. And why are they doing that? So that they can be the best they can be for their particular sport during the season. But the only thing that uh, they have to worry about is wins or losses. Losses are the worst thing that's going to happen to them. When a police officer is in the same scenario and they're not proficient and they're out of shape and their mental health is compromised, we all know what the consequences of that can be. And so we believe, you know, you could call it a street athlete, you could call it, you know, being treated more like a professional athlete, but part of a big part of this film is encouraging departments to give officers some of those same benefits as in teach them nutrition, have an on-staff dietitian that can teach them how to grocery shop and how to meal plan, and more specifically, how to eat as is according to their own body, their own height and weight, and their own goals. Not everybody has to lose weight. Some people have to gain weight. Not everybody needs you know, to build more muscle. Maybe they need to be more flexible. They're, everybody is different in agencies. It kind of goes back to that, that idea that a one-size-fits-all approach with defensive tactics. Well, it doesn't work that way for physical fitness either. Just because I can knock out 24 push-ups, 32 sit-ups, and run a mile in 12 minutes doesn't necessarily mean I'm in any kind of level of shape because everybody's going to be different. That, that performance does not equate to real-life operational performance that you're talking about on the street when doing a technique after maybe you've climbed a few walls and, and chased a guy full speed with 25 pounds of gear on a vest that constricts your breathing for 60 seconds. You know, there are so many different variables in this conversation. And John and I and the rest of the cast in this film are not here to solve the world's problems. What we are here to do is start a conversation. Yeah, it comes down to performance optimization, right? And and like you had said, that the mental health component is such, it's one of those it, we all talk about it, but when we when it comes to actually putting, you know, um, uh, words into actions, it doesn't happen very often. People kind of fall short. Um, obviously, mental health is something that we're super passionate about here with ILET. We have our I Got Your Six program that we run every year. Um, it's really interesting to me because there are things like you had said that we don't talk about when it comes to performance optimization. We don't talk about sleep and fatigue management. We don't talk about, like you had said, nutrition. We don't talk about um, flexibility, mobility, um, athleticism. We don't talk about all of these different things. You know, um, I think people would be surprised at how uh, how hard of a workout a little yoga is and how much benefit you can get out of doing that a couple times a week. Um, and you can do that on your own, on your living room floor, right? As you're watching whatever fucking show you're watching. Um talking about things like um, for example we're going to be doing some training with colorado department of corrections and one of the things that they've identified for their correctional officers is um financial assistance and financial wellness and saying like hey listen you are making x amount of dollars what are you 
why are, why is finances a stress for you? And how do we help you as an agency provide you with that financial planning assistance so that you understand here's where I can put my money so that we're saving for retirement or saving for what our family needs or paying our bills. So that's not a compromising factor for a correctional officer that ends up getting them fished by an inmate um, and being in debt to somebody and then causing that whole thing to spiral out of control. Um, and that happens with police officers as well, right? When we see, and obviously um, you get into IA and all that other stuff, when you have officers that are stepping outside of the bounds, there's usually a reason behind it, right? And so how do we prevent that from happening? How do, and all of these little things add up. And if you don't have your shit in alignment, one of those, when, when we have those leak, because we could, I could talk about it as like a leakage point with like a strike, right? We have energy, energy movement and leakage points. One of those weak weak points is going to cause a, cause something worse to happen down the line, right? And so if we can start identifying that with these officers from the start, which includes all of these components, and it's not just the physical skills like you had said, it's all of these things, um, I think it's hypercritical. And, and sorry, I only say that, I didn't mean to go down kind of a rabbit hole on it, but you had put together, Jason, um, you had put together a, a film previously a few years ago called uh, The Wounded Blue. Um, and I just want to talk about that briefly because um, at this year's upcoming ILET Summit, we're going to be showcasing that film and as well, we're going to be showcasing a portion of Risk Lock and we're going to be doing talks and roundtables about both of them. And so can you explain a bit about Wounded Blue and what that was, the film was about and, and why, it's so, it, why it's still so pertinent for officers to see today? Yeah, I mean, the film came out three years ago, but but just like, you know, Rislock, the the the, uh, the problems within law enforcement are probably realistically decades away from being being solved. You've got all of these agencies that have, you know, their own procedures, their own policies, their own egos, more importantly, and their own way of doing things. So it really causes uh, kind, of, kind of a bureaucratic uh issue when you're talking about trying to solve these profession-wide. But the Wounded Blue uh, all started uh, when a friend of both John and I that, that worked with us, Lieutenant Randy Sutton, um, you know, when he retired, he, he actually had a stroke in his patrol car and, and had some issues with our agency and actually paying the medical bills for an on-duty stroke, if you can believe that. But ultimately, uh, that health issue forced him into retirement a little bit early uh, and he became an advocate for police officers across the country who were injured and disabled and was getting through social media and Facebook messages every single day of scenarios where officers were injured or disabled in the line of duty and their agencies basically screwed them. Okay. Because again, these smaller agencies do not have the infrastructure and the funds in place to take care of cops in the aftermaths of critical incidents. So Randy wanted to start an organization. Essentially, what I did is I made a film called The Wounded Blue that tells the six stories that inspired Lieutenant Randy Sutton to create the organization, which is also called The Wounded Blue. And it covers the issues of PTSD, uh, police suicide, and the financial implications that occur to an officer once they're involved in a critical incident. As an example, typically, if you are shot and cannot come to work the next day, because of the way workers' comp works in most states, you just lost 66% of your income. Yeah, um, I'm just uh, I'm just looking up right now the current numbers so I don't get them wrong. Um, what the current number is for the amount of police suicides we had this year. Um, last year was obviously a record high. 
Um, it, it's it's so frustrating to me. Um, obviously, with just the number the the pure numbers of law enforcement in the U.S., there's obviously more that take place in the U.S. Um, there's been some very prominent ones in Canada where we've had officers take their lives. Um, when we have more officers dying by suicide than by something that happens on the job um, through some type of criminal act, there's a massive issue there, right? Like that's when we have, and, and like you, you extrapolate that to the military and we have significantly more military veterans taking their lives than were ever killed in combat. Um, and so that those are, these are topics that are, they're so hard to talk about because it's kind of like, where do we start? Right. Like where, where's the starting point for this? And it's, again, it falls down to where does he, where does the, um, does it fall the responsibility fall to the officer? Does it fall to your partners or your teammates or your platoon? Uh, everybody in your platoon, does it fall to your command staff? Does it fall to trainers? Does it fall to policy? Where, where do you think is a great starting point to have this conversation for, for officers and for agencies? Well, uh, the answer to that question probably would be all of the above. I mean, this really has to be a team effort and it has to occur at all levels. You know, at, at our level, the peer level, obviously the stigma somehow needs to be removed to have these conversations. We talk about all the time crisis intervention training, CIT, that, that's a, a very uh, popular trend in law enforcement and has been for uh, you know at least the last 10 years. And what are we teaching officers about? We're teaching them about how to respond to people in crisis and mental health issues. But I think that has kind of a, a, a inadvertent effect on a police officer actually coming back from that training and then being will, willfully going to their own supervisor and saying, that's me. No cop wants to say that because of the a personality nature of our job. You know, you don't want to ever be perceived as weak. So, you know, I, I think that, Everybody will have to come together now. We address. We have an entire chapter in Risklock dedicated to the mental health issue, and we do a segment on a guy named Alex Salazar, who's a former Los Angeles police officer who was involved in a um, off-duty incident uh, in 1991, where basically he's driving downtown LA, heading to work, he's got his uniforms in his car, he's got his police gear in his car, but he's in civilian clothes and not prepared to handle a call. Sees a robbery in progress, uh, a purse snatching. So he goes and he confronts these individuals doing the purse snatching, uh, ends up pulling out his firearm and pointing it at them, thinking they'll comply, but they don't. They walk toward him. So instead of shooting them, he didn't feel he you know, was in the jeopardy to be able to do so. He backs up into the street and a car comes and hits him, folds his leg in half, and he's just sitting there in pain, you know, completely uh, immobilized from his broken leg while these guys vandalize his car, steal all his stuff and run away. Well, he's a Hispanic officer. Uh, these uh, were um, Hispanic gang members. And from that point on, once he healed from the injury, per him, he became a racist. He started to equate violence with dark skin as a police officer because his mental health became compromised from that incident. And unfortunately for him, when he came back a year later, the Rodney King riots began, and he was involved in everything that dealt with being on the ground for that. And then I'll give you one guess as to what station he worked at in the late 1990s. That's right, Rampart, and was part of that scandal. He was on the crash team, okay? So Alex was obviously uh, 
put into a lot of different situations that he was not equipped to handle due to his mental health issues. He went and asked for help from his supervisors. And because manpower is always an issue, what do they tell him? Suck it up. Don't be a pussy. Get on the street. And that was 1990s police work, not just LAPD everywhere. Okay. He didn't find out he had PTSD until he had to resign uh, in 1999 after a domestic violence incident with his wife, his then wife. And he found out by reading a book uh, called Cop Shock by Alan Cates, who for the first time at that point, finally put a connection between PTSD and law enforcement. And that is what uh, prompted him to go get diagnosed from a psychologist and find out that is what was causing him these issues during his 10 year career. So we do a whole segment on Alex and cover that issue. And Bensie Bratner-Smith talks about the fact that, you know, we are doing a lot right now in law enforcement when it comes to mental health at the peer level, but at the, the line and administrative levels, not so much. Just a lot of talk, a lot of chatter, a lot of this is what we want to do for our officers' wellness, but very little action. You know what's interesting? Um, I did a... Uh kind of a personal pull. I don't post too much on social media just of myself. Like it's just me. Normally it's eyelet related or training related. Um, I did a post would have been February, maybe January, February. Um, I was sitting in our gym. I made a little gym. We have a detached garage that's heated. So we created a little gym in there. Um, and, uh, thanks to old uncle COVID, I think I put on probably, I like to blame COVID. It wasn't COVID. I'm just a lazy fuck. So I put on probably 20 or 30 pounds, um, over the last couple of years. I wasn't training. I wasn't doing anything active. Obviously there's a thousand different things that you can blame with. Like we have four kids under five. We have all the business and all that kind of stuff. Right. So I always had an excuse. Um, but to tie this story around, I was in the gym and I'd been working out now for about three weeks um, where I just forced myself to go every day in there an hour a day. I don't care if I was working out or I was in there just doing like just stretching. Like every day I, I got into a routine because I knew I needed a routine every day. Um, three weeks later, I had this epiphany um, that I was just so much happier. Like my, my mental health was directly correlated to my physical health. And so when I started becoming more physical and getting back into training, everything kind of started falling into line. I had less anxiety. I had less stress. I was able to get up. I was able to play with my kids. I was able to do all these things that I just, I, I was lethargic prior to. And I got back into training and I found that my mental health took a massive turn. Um, and I made a post about it. And the amount of responses I got back from that post where people were reaching out to me personally, like DMs and stuff saying, I appreciate you saying this. I've been in a, in a bad spot for the last couple of years and I'm going out and I'm starting to work out and I've kept up with these folks. And there's a handful of people that have literally changed their lives around from a mental health perspective, just by working out. And I know I'm not the only person. I mean, I have a very long history of, of being a, like an athlete. So for me, it was, uh, that's my kind of comfort zone, but I think to, to tie it into what wrist lock is in the defensive tactics and the martial arts component, you know, the, the folks that are, I always found that I was always happiest in a gym training and the folks that were always in the gym were always happy folks. Like you can, you, you very rarely find somebody who comes to a gym, just pissed off all the time. 
Um, and if they do, usually someone's like, go hit the heavy bag, come back in half an hour, right? Once you're calm. So I, I want to ask you guys your thoughts on that, on the correlation between physical health and mental health um, and how you think that can play into law enforcement training. Go ahead, John. Well, you know, here's the thing. Working the streets for the for the average cop, especially if you're young, you're probably working graveyard, especially if you're in a big agency because that's where they put you first. So to me, I always thought hitting the gym, developing a routine is the best way to do it. I mean, you know, a lot of us, I mean, even today, I have to like juggle my schedule sometimes. It's a flexible schedule, which is fantastic. But when I was working the job and you're working 10 hours a day, you want to have a routine and that routine is yeah. Gym. That routine could be your martial arts club, could be your, you know, Thai boxing gym or your, you know, if you do jujitsu, get a, at least a few days in a week. I mean, even if you're doing a couple hours, if you're doing four hours a week of Brazilian jujitsu or four hours of Thai boxing, or you get to the gym, you know, let's say you can't, let's say you, maybe you got a sore neck or something. Well, you could still go to the gym and do some cardio. You could still make up some ground where you're going to feel better. And I, you know, and I don't know anybody I know that leaves the gym and goes, man, that was just horrible. I don't really know anybody that does that. People walk out of the gym. They might've walked in saying, man, I ain't ready for this today. <laughs> but when they walk out, they feel better. When you go into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and you're rolling your last hour, you know, you get one hour of technique, one hour of this. You're not looking forward to it when you walk in, especially if you missed a few weeks. But when you come out, you feel better. When you leave a seminar, maybe a weekend, three days, and you've been practicing this and that, how do you feel when you're leaving? There is a real positive motivator to training and you know, not just activity sense, but in a mental sense. So you know, it's it's like success. It's not fully there, but you're achieving something. You're getting some training time in. So I think people feel good about it. So whether you're working or you're not working or you're not doing policing, maybe you're doing security, it's still good to be prepared and it's good to be active. People get hurt. We do DT training even in the squad level. If these people haven't worked out and done anything, how likely are they to complain when they twist their back? I mean, that that's that's a gimme. And now they're on workman's comp. So, you know, it, it all goes hand in hand. So I think there's a lot of positives with training. You just got to make it work. So regular is good. Lifestyle will be great. You know, that's my point of view. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and Adam, uh, great comment. You're, you're spot on. I mean, yes, uh, I think there's an uh, absolute correlation between you know, your, your fitness level, your physical fitness level and, and your mental health fitness. I, I think they kind of go hand in hand. And then like you guys just said, nobody walks out of a gym session pissed off. Nobody's there pissed off. And, you know, it, it's funny, uh, Adam, Adam, when you said that, I just started to envision my own self, you know, because, you know, I uh, uh, make it a priority to go five days a week. And, and so you end up seeing a lot of the same people. And, and you're absolutely correct. Everyone's got a smile on their face. They're just having a great time and, you know, and, and doing whatever it is that they do. I think that what, what people have to understand when it comes to the law enforcement side of this, we always talk about being a professional. Okay. And you've talked a lot about 
uh, performance. And that's something that we talk about as well. All trainers do, right? We're trying to get a certain level of performance on a consistent basis out of the people that we're training. But when we talk about the physical fitness aspect of this, as John said, that's going to take lifestyle. That's going to take commitment. That's going to take discipline. A lot of the things, a lot of the traits martial artists have, but you have to apply it to your diet. Because if there's one thing I can tell you uh, my, from my own experience and, and many other people's, you can't out train a bad diet. You can go to the gym five, six, seven days a week and work out all day. But if your, your uh, meals consist of McDonald's, Burger King, and Taco Bell, uh, I got news for you. You're, you're just going to stay in neutral. Nothing is going to happen. In fact, your, your fitness and your health level will, will devolve instead of evolve. So that is, uh, that's the trick right there is teaching how people how to eat. You know, John always likes to bring light of a, of a, uh, a narrative quote in the film, speaking of the proverbial gut bomb. And that's what we always talk about. Cops end up having at the bar that's open at two in the morning. Uh, the only place that they can go eat because they failed to prepare and pack a lunch in a cooler filled with healthy food so they feel like they have no choice. Personally, I'd rather just fast and starve than eat that garbage, but I understand that a lot of people do, and that's what we have to get around. Police are hired from the human race. Currently, the human race, and I, I apologize, I'm not up to how things are working in Canada right now, but in the United States, the majority of people are addicted to fat, sugar, and salt, and they're gonna go everywhere they can find those three ingredients because that makes the food taste good gives them that nice hit of dopamine and you know they feel great in the moment and they feel like shit an hour later and, and then they might try to go to the gym and work it off and if you uh go on youtube you can find all sorts of videos of high level professional athletes who attempt to burn 10,000 calories that they just consumed in food as an experiment and they fail. They don't even get up to the three or 4,000 calorie mark. And that isn't somebody that is in elite physical condition. So if you think any of us could do that, we're wrong. And so that is why diet is so incredibly important. And yet what I find as much as people don't know their defensive tactics, they don't know how to work out at a gym. They also don't know how to eat. And, and as law enforcement officers, if we want to create that optimal performance in our cops, we have got to hit all three. And that is really what this film is about. And that's a tough one. Yeah. I mean, the, you talked, you touched on dopamine. Um, obviously there's um, for, for folks that are listening to this, you know, like you had said, dopamine is the feel good drug that our brain creates. Usually that's stimulated by a few things. The most common would be food and sex and exercise, right? those stimulate dopamine. There's, there's synthetic ways to stimulate it um, with amphetamines like cocaine or heroin. Um, but like, or nicotine. Likes, likes and retweets. <laughs> likes and retweets, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but to your point, um, the, the other thing that you said about simple dietary changes, um, the biggest dietary change that I made, because I'm a, like, I have uh, the biggest sweet tooth in the world. Um, if it has sugar in it, I'll eat it. Like, I don't care what it is. Um, I cut out sugars, essentially. Um, we cut out sugars and it was something as simple as if I'm going to buy a Coke, I buy a Coke zero or like, like little things like that. Um, that made a massive, massive difference in, in how I felt and how, how much energy I actually had throughout the day, um, which was surprising. But the other thing, um, that I do want to bring up with that is the use of stimulants. 
officers use of stimulants while on shift um which affects their sleep um and and that's also another massive massive thing i had a i've done a few things a podcast before and some training with dr charles samuels out of the center for sleep up here in, in calgary alberta um, he actually wrote the sleep and fatigue management program that's been adopted by the RCMP and has just recently been adopted by the College of Surgeons and Physicians in Canada. Um, and so it's a very, very robust program. But we had we've had conversations where it's like, you know, the the coffee, the drinking coffee is is one thing, but it's when you have an officer who's running a 10 or a 12 and they have two hours left in their shift and they're crashing, so they take a shot of pre-workout. Um, right. And I know guys that do that still to this day. And I tell them, I'm like, man, not only are you, you're screwing with your heart, but you're really, you're really just, you're not just ruining today. The, the, uh, the cumulative effects of sleep loss by using stimulants on day one, and then you do it day two, day three, day four, that's going to affect you for weeks, not just the day that you use it. And I think unless people start understanding that this, this, um, this use of stimulants to keep ourselves alert and awake instead of doing something else like physical exercise to stimulate our bodies is super detrimental. And again, plays into this spiral that we see with officers when they start making really piss poor decisions or they can't um, react the way they want physically when, when shit hits the fan. There's another issue too, that goes with that. And it's, it's kind of the yin and yang of caffeine because at five in the morning when you're working graveyard, I, I did five, I did 10 years of graveyard at five in the morning. I don't think it's just natural for human beings to be awake all night into five in the morning. You know, I, there's a certain point in time in that morning where you will feel tired, you know, and, and, and our officers, the, what's the one thing that'll hurt them more than anything, bad decision-making of course. Right. But what are they doing in their car? They shouldn't be nodding off, right? That's a discipline issue. They may be narcoleptic, you know? I mean, there, there could be a lot of things there, but I mean, I do remember myself saying, you know what, you you know, you get with a partner, you go to like, you know, could we have 7-Elevens on every corner? And I used to tell them, you know, get a little Java. You know, if you need a little coffee or something, get out, walk around, get coffee, now, I, I did do Red Bulls for years till my cardiologist told me to stop it. <laughs> <laughs> so I was a sinner. But, you know, you learn things, you know, because you, you're weighing things up. And this isn't a sleep, a sleep uh, podcast. But, you know, I remember banging on the window. And, you know, I, I've caught people drifting off before. And they're looking at discipline. They're looking at discipline at the minor level of that. Repeated stuff like that, they're going to lose their job. If they're driving around and they fall asleep at the wheel, they're going to crash a car. You know, they're not, you know, they may not even answer their radio. You don't want that. You know, you're dealing with an agency. You want a good, you know, it does come back to fitness. It does come back to lifestyle because you don't know what they're doing in their, their own free time all the time, right? But caffeine, unfortunately or fortunately, does play a role with graveyard guys. I'm using that shift as a, uh, as a crutch. Right. But it does, you know, graveyard guys to me was, you know, my, my thing back then was, you know what, get out of the car, walk around, do a foot patrol, get somebody to join you. We don't always have that amount of time, but bottom line is I'd say, listen, you know, get yourself, some, get yourself a cup of coffee, 
I'm not working for the coffee industry, but I know that at least getting up, getting a cup of coffee, if you need a couple of minutes, take it. Because, yeah, it is. Caffeine in the long run, I'm not doubting any of those statistics or what it could do to you. I've got a cardiologist, for God's sakes, you know. So I understand it. But on the other side of the coin, you know, 5 o'clock in the morning is really tough for any profession if you're going to be awake all the time. And, you know, I was a 10-year guy on Graveyard, and a lot of people didn't want to work it because of sleep. Sleep was one of the majority things, you know. That's just my two cents, but you know, I'll, I'll put myself out there on the caffeine. You know, um, I think at least coffee, I think, is a little better than Red Bull. I don't want to defame Red Bull, but sorry, you know. Yeah, yeah. Red Bull Monster Rockstar. Exactly. Um, <laughs> they're, they're all they're but, all out but there. To that point, there are there's and there's a worse consequence to that. Um, now the officer. Uh, so yesterday in Toronto, there was an officer who was ambushed and killed sitting in his car eating lunch. Um, basically a guy walked up, shot him just square away. And nobody was there. Um, that is significantly easier when an officer is nodding off or falling asleep in their patrol vehicle. Um, and we've seen a massive prevalence right now in officer ambush. Um, if, if I were to say there's one key thing that we're looking at going to be making very, uh, very prevalent in training over the next year, it's going to be officer ambush and situational awareness. Um, and so that's one of those things where, again, you may not see the long term effects of, of what you're doing. Right. But it's kind of goes back to that training. Right. If you're if you're training for it and you're ready for something when it happens, at least you have a chance. If you're falling asleep and you're not taking care of yourself physically and you get on shift and you fall asleep in your patrol vehicle, you may not get a chance to wake up because there are bad actors out there who are actively targeting police right now. And it's, and it's, it's scary. It really is scary when you hear stories like this, like they're on a training exercise, a, a, a multi-agency training exercise. The guy's taking his lunch and gets shot and killed. Didn't even see it coming. Like, it's 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 frustrating it's sad and it's just it's how do we start getting across to these officers that it's like it's not just one thing right both of you have said this multiple times on this podcast already it's not it's never just one thing we're never going to have that magic pill where we can say hey take this it's going to save your life right it doesn't exist it's a it's a pattern it's a cumulative effect of all of these things making sure that you're taking care of all of these things at the same time. I think, uh, uh, you know, yeah. adding on to what you said, reverting back to the training, martial arts, policing, martial arts, security, martial arts, military. What's, you know, there's a lot of commonality that you get for situational awareness that will make you better in that realm. You know, ranges. You learn the ranges a little bit. You become more aware. You know, situational awareness is a big word. A lot of people teach it. There's a whole lot of things to it, but basically before you are attacked, before trouble arises, before they do a foot pursuit, you know, when they're looking around, what are they looking for? They're looking for an avenue, maybe to run. <laughs> How about fight or flight? You know, all these like popular terms, but that's all part of situational awareness. And I think martial arts at least will make you fresh, just like going to the gym. Those are all proponents to really help you. Uh, with those street encounters. And, you know, experience is the mother of all technique. I mean, you know, 
being out there and doing the job is going to obviously help you too, you know, but you know, then you got to infuse everything else. So I think martial arts plays a great role there. Um, have you guys seen, this is complete tangent and I apologize. Have you guys seen the video from Australia with the, uh, the knife fight in the mall? I have not. No, I'm going to show you this. I had a, I had a, I did a podcast with Kelly Keith, um, up here, uh, just earlier this week or last Friday, I did it with him in the morning. Um, in this video, it's a short video, but it too, I just, when you started saying distance, um, and understanding distance, this is one of those things where I was like, this is exactly what I, I would show this to every officer in Academy where it's like, here's what you don't understand about how things work like knives. So I'm going to, I'm going to show you, I'm going to see if I can pull this up real quick and, and show everybody like that. That's how quick it happens. Right. I mean, um, it's absolutely crazy. Um, balls, me, of just, steel. balls of steel to run on a guy with a knife. And well, walk you, forward, yeah, right? you could see it. Like the guy has it and he's backing up and he's like, like they, these guys keep pressing the action, but it takes no time. And from the point where that guy hit him with that knife to at 10 seconds later, the guy's already bled out. Yeah. Bad. Like it's, it's, it's that kind of stuff. It's the actual, um, to quote a guy, to quote somebody we've talked about already a lot, um, Tony Blauer on here, right? Violence loves speed, right? It's, that's the kind of stuff, that's the reality, right? If you're not prepared for something and you're, you don't have the, that distance, you don't understand what's going on. Obviously, I people are going to be listening to this. You're like, um, if a guy pulled a knife on me, obviously I'm not going to do that. <laughs> But to demonstrate just how quickly something can happen, yeah, that's it, right? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, you. You know, there's nothing more to say on that. You watch the video, you're like, "Yep." But you know, cops will violate that rule all the time and be in that close distance, and we do that for a number of reasons. You know, we're de-escalating, we're talking to somebody, we're making them sign a ticket. You know, think about how close they are. You know, hopefully. They've done some things prior to talking to this person or whatever, you know, or you keep distance. I don't know. I mean, you can't teach smart. I mean, we're trying. We're one, one person at a time. But I mean, running on a guy with a knife isn't, uh, you know, something I would preach ever to anybody. You know, we'll run in at him. You don't have a knife. You don't have anything, by the way. Yeah. Or, or even just like you had said, the, it's where you're putting yourself in that position, right? So if I'm within, if I'm within arm's reach of a person or a lunging reach and you have a guy like Jared, right? His knife could be easily just tucked away in his pocket. He's getting you just as quick with that as having it already produced. Well, I mean, if you look at fencers and stuff, just go back to like martial arts, you'll never find a guy like with a stick or even old pictures. You don't see them with the, like, you know, just empty hands approaching a guy with a weapon. It, it's just your weapon is close. Their weapon is close. That's the old school way. You don't, you know, this is last resort. First resort is hopefully your CCW or ha have a firearm. I mean, and you know, watch your backdrop. You got to follow the rules there. But I mean, realistically, that's how you beat a knife. Distance, smarts, <laughs> and have a better weapon such as a gun, you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> Always going to need to bring a gun to a knife fight. Right? <laughs> exactly. You know, no doubt. Um, with that being said, um, when um, let's, let's just uh, let's cap up this, this video here, Jason, where, um, where do you see this? Where's this video going to be available? Where can people find it? Um, and, and what's kind of the rollout for this? What can people expect? Well, it will be starting on September 20th. We will have it available on uh, uh, basically rent, purchase, pay-per-view on demand, whatever you want to call it for Amazon, uh, Apple TV, Microsoft Store, Google Play, and then uh, a host of other platforms and on-demand services throughout Canada, uh, Asia, Europe, and the United States. So it's going to be a worldwide rollout that will start September 20th. There'll be dozens more added on October 4th. We've got more coming out in December. So it's going to have a, a, a very wide release and is going to be very accessible to people regardless of what type of platform you prefer to use. That's awesome. And uh, and you and I have talked about when when I first found out that you and, and John had, had kind of started putting this thing together, um, I said, I want this to be a part of our ILET Summit because I think it's critical that officers know, one, that it exists, um, and two, that they have access to it as a tr as a training resource. And so uh, coming up for this year's ILET Summit, obviously, we're going to do a, a special showcase. We're going to show parts of it. Um, and we're going to bring John, yourself on, and some of the experts from this video themselves to talk about, to maybe dive a little bit deeper into the components that they taught um, and to have just an overall discussion. I mean, everybody here who's used to the roundtables that you see on Tactical Breakdown, um, and um, I'm excited for that. We're also going to showcase Wounded Blue um, as, and we're going to show that whole video and we're going to have that conversation um, about Wounded Blue and about mental health and talking about officers and injuries and, and how agencies need to be backing up their officers. Um, and I'm excited for that as well, because that is just as critical um, to saving lives as is teaching martial arts and defensive tactics, I think. So um, gentlemen, I just want to say how much I appreciate you guys taking the time and being a part of this and, and doing and having a conversation with me and being open to my random spattering of questions. Um, with that being said, I mean, I'm going to give you as much time and space as you want. Is there anything that you would like to, to share with officers, um, or folks listening to this podcast? Is there anything top of mind for you? Are there any questions you have for me or anything you'd like to cover before we, uh, we end this? Yeah, I, um, for, for me, you know, I've been, I've been training for like since the eighties and, uh, it has been a real benefit to me in my career, uh, being a police officer or sergeant to, to have embarked into the martial arts realm. I think it's really important. It does bring a lot of things to assist you with your career, whatever career you choose it does provide you with some discipline. If you weren't in the military, it's a, it's a, it's something that requires regularity and getting towards the police. You know, the film itself is going to be a motivator, but in, at the end we're exposing a lot of stuff and we're talking about more or less making it a lifestyle because you're going to have a higher success rate. You're going to make better decisions under stress when you train. And that's training is, is a combination of what we begin with, what we pull out of it, what we learn in, through policing or security or other fields, and how you apply it. That's the biggest stuff going. But it is going to keep you sharp. So, you know, lifestyles, my, my, my closing is that. And I, I do hope people watch it because the cast 
is great. I'm like Kane from Kung Fu going around all over the place looking for answers. And I hope everybody joins me and everybody else on that journey with the film. So watch it. I love it. Jason, last words to you, brother. Yeah, you know, uh, Anne-Marie Carazola, she was a, a Houston, Texas police officer who in 2013 uh, stopped a uh, carload of uh, what she did not know at the time were robbery suspects that were doing a string of convenience store robberies. And in this quote-unquote routine traffic stop for a traffic violation, she was subsequently shot in the face and chest. Well, she was a Marine Corps uh, veteran, and she got in her car after being shot in the face and chest, bleeding everywhere and uh, went in vehicle pursuit on these suspects who were ultimately caught after a perimeter was set up with the rest of her partners. Um, I showed her wrist lock, the martial arts influence on police use of force for two reasons. First off, because I had done a segment on her in uh, The Wounded Blue. She kind of is the frame of the entire film, but also because I knew that she was the uh, first female ever to be a member of the Marine Corps boxing team. Uh, and her initial reaction to this film was, it's a gut punch. And I really want people to think about that because there's going to be two audiences for this. The, the one most are going to cite, and probably a lot of your listeners, is, well, it's going to be for cops, for law enforcement people. And, and for them, I would say, absolutely, you're going to glean a lot of great information and hopefully a lot of motivation. You, know, you mentioned the way the trailer kind of plays. The movie plays a lot uh, very similarly and is intended to motivate cops to do the right things and engage in that lifestyle that John is talking about. But the other side of it to me might even be more important. And that's the mainstream audiences, because I told you at the beginning of this program that that is the reason why you know, I produce these law enforcement related films to talk about the critical issues that affect cops that the mainstream media doesn't cover because it, it's either too positive, not negative enough, or doesn't get the clicks and the ad buys that mainstream media outlets, you know, thrive on for their income. Uh, for, for this film, I think that the mainstream audiences who engage with it, what they'll see is it's actually a very harsh critique on our profession. It, it's very truthful in that regard. We talk about the problems in law enforcement as it relates to defensive tactics, proficiency being poor, poor physical fitness and compromised mental health. And I think that if people see and engage with this film, what they'll find out is a lot of the answers to the questions that are causing a lot of the outrage in our country in specific to uh, a lot of the incidents that began uh, primarily, you could probably say if Michael Brown and Ferguson, but came to that flashpoint with George Floyd in 2020 uh, and, and with several incidents since. Those, those incidents where you see a few seconds of video on national TV and everybody gets pissed off, but they don't take it a step further and actually do their research. What we've done with this film is we've done the research for them. And I hope people take the time to watch this film and perhaps come away with a better understanding of the lack of training that police officers really have. No, we can't kick everybody's ass. No, we don't have capes on. We are just people. We are humans that will only thrive if we're properly trained. It's that simple. I love it. Um, and we'll make sure that when we do the round table, um, the conversation of George Floyd and LVNR and neck restraints um, and why we went away from those, that's a, that's at least a three-hour discussion on its own, so we'll leave that 
for another time. Um, yeah. Guys, I really appreciate you being here and being a part of this and uh, look forward to having you guys on and part of the summit. All right. Thanks, Adam. Nice meeting you. Thank you. Join the Islet Network now. Go to islet.network. That's I-L-E-T dot network.